0: Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Ocean Embassy, where I interview engineers, scientists, researchers, policymakers, and everyone in between and beyond that all advocate for our oceans in one way or another. From exploring the deep sea, to building robots that grow macroalgae, to voicing concerns and targets at government levels on a daily basis, there are so many ocean champions out there. Today's guest is someone I admire very much. I met Jeremy when we were both Ocean Discovery Fellows at the All Hands on Deck conference at MIT Media Lab in November 2018. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association in the United States is one of the leading ocean exploration research institutes and holds a conference dedicated to a specific marine field of study annually. In 2018, however, the conference was a bit different. That year, It took place at the MIT Media Lab, an incredible interdisciplinary technology and design institute at the infamous MIT in Boston. It was organized by the Open Ocean Initiative, led by Katie Croft-Bell, who we will, by the way, also welcome here on the podcast soon. And it was a complete shift from what conferences I had been at usually looked like. The spirit of interdisciplinary work, the urgency of collaboration, and high level of youth presented was amazing. The fact that there were so many diverse and young people present at a conference we could have usually never afforded was thanks to a fund for so-called ocean discovery fellows, young ocean leaders and explorers from around the world, which as I mentioned both Jeremy and I were. This was also the experience that eventually led me to look at my work from a completely different angle. Though I was studying robotics in my master's degree at the time and knew I wanted to work in this field for a while. I was sketching down ideas back then already of building a platform to share all the work of these people I had met, the projects I had heard of. It took a few years of learning, but here we are and this idea, initially formed with juvenile words four years ago, has finally taken shape. Before we jump in and you hear more about what Jeremy has done and where he's coming from, I want to explain two things Jeremy will say. He is a seishwa which is someone from the Seychelles. You will hear him say this quite a lot, and it might not be clear to everyone. Secondly, one of the first things he talks about is Aldabra, which is one of the 115 islands the Seychelles consist of. It's a part of the outer islands of the Seychelles and is a heavily protected area for its flora and fauna, and for good reason. It's, for example, the world's second largest coral atoll, just to name one amazing feature. Unfortunately, like so many islands, especially in the Indian Ocean, it is heavily polluted with plastic. Jeremy has been involved in many ways with ocean and nature protection in his home country. And shortly after we met, he organized a large cleanup project on algebra. So, this is it, and now let's dive in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. We are here to hear about your amazing work. So to do a little intro of you, you studied environmental science and international relations in Cape Town and actually also in Dresden, Germany. Um, We unfortunately never managed to meet when you were in Germany. Um, And you were then in 2008 working for the Seychelles Island Foundation as a project coordinator in education and outreach, biodiversity and logistics. And since March of this year, you live in New York as a fellow of the Small Island States AOSIS. And throughout the last years, I've seen that you have built an amazing network advocating for small island states and Seychelles, where you're from. I've seen a lot of pictures of you in UN conference rooms. And you are also a young ocean leader and member of the inaugural Youth Policy Advisory Council at the Sustainable Ocean Alliance. I think you do a lot of many more things, actually, but those were the ones that really stuck out to me in regards to the ocean. And I would like to kind of hear about the impact of your work, why it's so crucial and necessary for the oceans, and how you see the development and rising attention of ocean technologies and exploration under this umbrella of representing a small island state. And those that unfortunately we know are often not heard as loudly as others and disregarded.
1: Um, yeah. If I can jump back, what I, I remember really strongly from that uh, All Hands on Deck was three words, right? It was that mm-hmm. play, discover, um, what was the other? Um, explore. It's it's a lot of what I've done with SIF, I think. And having that conference um, in 2018 really, uh, yeah, like you said, there was a cross-cutting theme there for me. We, we, I understood it was communication, whether it was internally within our communities of conservationists, scientists, you know, ocean people, as yourself an engineer. So it was really interesting to go into that conference. And then it was my first conference, but it definitely gave mm-hmm. me so much motivation working at Seychelles Science Foundation. So the, the, the recent celebration of 50 years of the Aldabra Research Station is a huge story in itself. The Aldabra Research Station is currently now 51 years plus because of COVID and everything. It had to be delayed from June 30th, which is its official date. So June 30th, 2021, would have been 50 years. Um, because of COVID, it got moved um, to to last week, and it was an amazing celebration that brought generations of people connected to Aldabra from the 60s, when the first expeditions um, were taking place, to save it from becoming a military base like Diego Gracia any place to the to the people who actually. You know, we're part of establishing the, the research station to some of the Seychelles who who were there in the in the 80s as it was handed over to Seychelles, a, a, a newly uh, created uh, state um, with this huge responsibility and limited capacities to take on the space. So and then I've seen all the all the people of my time from 10 years ago, and I'm hoping to see. You know, that we managed to get a bunch of Seychelles young uh, marine biologists, scientists, you know, future conservationists who we hope to have them on on Aldabra and in SIF and and working in Seychelles' environmental sector. So so SIF is really interesting because, uh, as you said, I've been a project officer and that's seen me deal with invasive species with things like plastic pollution and technology is key there. Um, Invasive species, we know it's from things like using camera traps to record and monitor what's in a certain area. Using things like um, an invasive species discussion is never really quite nice, but, you know, uh, kill traps that are humane, but basically automatic, you know, so that basically when you're dealing with rodents, uh, you know, in our case, uh, black rats and Norwegian rats, you know, that are killing endemic, endangered species like the black parrot. So, you know, there's really interesting uses of, of applications of technology in Seychelles already with SIF. To other things like so dealing with plastic pollution, you know, some of the limitations you find in small island developing state is we've got all this photo degraded, you know, uh, marine plastic pollution that can't be really be processed in Seychelles or so can only be made into art, I would argue, or only certain things, right? Very limited applications. But in fact, we, and just before COVID, we had managed to get in touch with a university in Germany who wanted to take something like 10 tons of our uh, 25 tons of plastic pollution to run various tests on it. And, uh, you know, that's something you can't do in the Indian Ocean, let alone, you know, in Seychelles. So that's, you know, shows you that technology is crucial when we're trying to deal with these problems. And with the Aldabra 50th anniversary, communications was something I spoke to. Um, during that, and it showed that you know we, we have now virtual classrooms that not only allow our outreach to take place during a pandemic, but also with UNESCO marine world heritage site that is 1,200 kilometers away from the main island of Seychelles, and hours and hours, if not days, away from any kind of humans. So we were able to connect with 2,000 school children around the world and deliver you know stories around Aldabra's incredible turtle recovery. Or the way in which climate affects it. So you know, again, technology and conservation is critical. And I know we're doing things with drones, wild and yeah. So I'm I'm sorry if I've gone off a little bit, I'm but I feel- this, uh, uh. this is what this is about. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, the goal is to to really highlight how that all intersects and how education, outreach, conversation, a conservation. I always mess up that word conservation and technology all need to go hand in hand. Um, I picked up on on one specific thing you said was the turtle recovery. How did that come come about? Like what, what went into making sure that the turtles in Aldabra recovered? Was it conservation, was it protection? Was it the cleanup you organized? Um, and which role did the technology possibly play in there?:
1: So again, this 50 years anniversary, one of the biggest achievements is being able to monitor. So Aldabra is a, a special reserve <laughs> in Seychelles and has seven international designations. That shows its protection, whether it's on birds, whether it's on mangroves or Ramsar. And in terms of the turtles, it's one where passive conservation has happened, but monitoring has ensured. So, you know, during the first half of the 20th century, Aldabra was exploited. Its turtle population was being um, killed for for food, uh, exported outside, even to the war efforts, uh, if I'm correct. And from the 60s, 70s, the way the royal society came in that that prevented that, and um, for the last forty plus years, especially with the the guidance and setup of uh, Dr. Jean Mortimer, uh, we call her Madame Torti, so turtle lady back in Seychelles. So she set up this monitoring program across Seychelles, really standardised it, and from there we could see that there's so many more turtles not just being born but being coming back in that sense um because they've got a long reproductive cycle so there's something like 400 percent increase in their populations so where people who were first on the royal society could only spot a couple on a on you know in a month our researchers can see 50 on one beach uh, that's about two kilometers long in a night so it's about this passive backing up in this case human tenacity. So every day going down a beach, whether it's public holiday, Christmas, whatever, there's someone who's going down the beach and counting the, the tracks that go up, seeing if they've nested, seeing if they've just gone back down, whatever it is. Sometimes tagging a turtle to try and find, okay, this turtle, if it's ever reseen, seen will be able to be identified by that tag. It's very basic in some ways, but GPS has been a crucial part of understanding how close these turtles go back to to nesting where they were they were born in that sense or they mm-hmm. were hatched i should say so you know in that sense it's a passive backing back to let the turtles do what they do best but i think it's been critical that we've had the ability to monitor we also do in water turtle uh, tagging so that's involving someone basically going out in the lagoon and uh, catching uh, juvenile turtles taking dna samples in some cases for hawksbill turtles you know, these this is significant populations for um, these well green turtles and hawksbill turtles. So for green turtles it's definitely one of the largest populations in the Western Indian Ocean. And for hawksbill, one of critical endangered species, it's also a significant population. So being able to carry out science that informs people's research. We have Cheryl Shansage. she's a PhD candidate looking into the foraging habits of these animals, using stable isotopes to trace what they're eating and stuff using drone technology to count the, the numbers in certain areas. So you can see how previous, you know, basic technology is now being augmented and, and built upon by even more advanced to try and get a better picture of exactly what they're doing and, and how they're doing it and what impacts it has on the environment.
0: Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about monitoring is that entailing, you, you mentioned the GPS, you mentioned tagging, but the actual monitoring in the sense that people are walking up and down the, the beach that is still done by by people, in fact. So there's actually still a large potential, right? I mean, thinking of doing that, for example, using drone footage or machine learning algorithms, that's probably a huge um, potential. But how far would you say that actually monitoring then empowered or allowed the protection of that? Did I understand that correctly? That Basically, because you started monitoring, you were able to show the negative impacts of human exploitation? Or how did that change come about, you know, that you started protecting and increasing the numbers?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, just to first agree with you, I think there is huge uh, potential for machine learning and and other things to come in and uh, maybe at first complement the work being done by humans. And as it gets better... Mm -hmm maybe replace, you know, and maybe make mm. uh, things easier on, because there's, there's a growing amount of workload on these, you know, there's only about 10 to 15 people on call at any time. So.
0: That's voluntary.
1: Um, they're all paid, but they're they're basically okay. sacrificing, seeing their families for a long period of time. It's an amazing, beautiful place that, again, I would mm-hmm. in a heartbeat be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it means, if it means taking up maybe one or two, uh, pieces of work off their shoulders. I think they would be quite happy, especially if it's a public holiday or something. Yeah, I think in terms of the the question is, you know, I think Aldabra. There's nobody. There's nobody in the world. I think that will at least in my <laughs> network of people who will come to me and say it's not worth protecting Aldabra or you know justify the protection of Aldabra. I think it's important though that we do create an understanding of what happens when we leave something alone. And Aldabra is being described as a natural laboratory. So, you know, somewhere where you've seen heavy exploitation, and in some some ways, many people would be hopeless about the prospects of a place like that recovering when they've seen such heavy exploitation. But being able to record that number of, of uh, turtles, uh, you know, being hatched and, and coming back and, and, and seeing this huge population increase is, is not only vital for Aldabra's protection, but other places. It says, hey, if this can be done on Aldabra, this can be done elsewhere. And so you may be finding yourself as a policymaker, as, as a decision maker saying, okay, we're going to protect this area, but we haven't seen turtles there. Or we've only seen two turtles there. And why should we, why should we protect it? It's already gone. And maybe someone like Aldabra can be a case study that says actually it been 40 years. If things are left to their own devices, if maybe, you know, Aldabra happens to be very far away from most human populations. So it has that natural protection. But maybe other places where you're able to enforce and protect turtles for a given amount of time. And that's a huge commitment. But Aldabra can show that, you know, that is that is possible. It's not a pipe dream. It, it, it's, it's being done in that sense. Give nature a chance and it replenishes itself. It rejuvenates.
0: That is one of the most amazing things within the ocean generally, I think, if you give it the chance mm-hmm. to, to be left alone, which is kind of ironic because you would think we always leave it alone but it requires actual commitment and monitoring to say okay this place nobody enters except to to do good mm-hmm. so so to say and then you see what the ocean comes up with itself and how it how it just regenerates there's a new series on Netflix i don't know if you've seen it with Barack mm-hmm. Obama on the great national parks and Sorry, i only watched yeah. the ocean only watched the ocean episode so far but there's mm-hmm. also the story about um this one specific island, I think it's in the uh, Pacific Ocean, I'm not entirely sure anymore, where they were talking about specifically uh, protecting this one island where millions of turtle are coming to nest and and hatch every year. And it's incredibly endangered because of sea level rise, because it's basically not even above the water and all the eggs are flooded before the turtles could hatch. Yes. And I thought that is the entire point of marine protected areas, right? To say, okay, we protect this place so that no human activity endangers the natural habitat of these amazing, Mm -hmm. amazing ecosystems. To translate or transfer that into your current work, then how would you say that protecting Aldabra the impressions you got there and science and technology influence your your work at the Aosis and what what exactly do you do there
1: yeah it's I mean I mean just just adding on to what you said I mean that's that's the the thing is you realize or I've realized in my in my case that from being a ranger, being a field research assistant on Aldabra in 2013 for about seven months, um, going to university, then coming back and working for SIF on the main island with maybe a couple of occasions going to Aldabra or other sites for four plus years, and then now being at this level, you you find yourself. I, I joined the the conservation environment, the field to be in the field, to 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 listen to birdsong, count turtles, you know uh be in nature and that's that's where i'm happiest um but i soon realized that that is important but but the fight that needs to be had for space places like Aldabra is in u.n conference rooms it's in the national assemblies it's you know it's it's in law and policy that doesn't always deliver immediate feels you know you're part of a project for five weeks it collects x amount of you know tons of pollution it's something to show you like, look, this is it. We've done this is something to show you send emails, you write statements, you, you push for one comma or you remove a certain statement. 190 plus countries need to agree on a statement. You know, it, it's doesn't have the same impact. I mean, in thinking about Aldabra, it's exactly that. The best local national efforts are being undermined by the Anthropocene, by the climate crisis, by plastic pollution. And other things, you know, invasive species that we can go into, um, maritime security where you have illegal, underreported, unregulated fishing taking place, overfishing, you know, all these things are impacting places that shouldn't be having an impact. So my transition from project officer to communications outreach coordinator has seen me move further away from Aldabra and other sites like the Valley de Maine. But it has actually prepared me for somewhere like the UN, where I have to understand that the fellow people in the room maybe don't have the same experiences as me working in this field. But I present the people who work on Aldabar, I present Seychelles who are affected by these decisions. And in fact, yesterday we were treated to a virtual reality uh, experience where we were transported to Fiji. It was shown to us communities who were not only impacted by a hurricane but also had to retreat further inland, further up into the hills because of climate change, because of sea level rise. And hearing the stories unpacked by these people who we would not be able to travel to, who decision makers would not be able to travel, and rarely they would have access to somewhere like the UN, but we were able to visit. And it made me incredibly homesick because the Pacific is very different to Seychelles in many ways, but whether it's the mango trees, palm trees, the beaches and the color of the sea, that's all home in in my way. And I think it was incredibly motivational and saddening and encouraging for me to see that technology was able to bring me there for 15 minutes. And I think that's one of the the major points was this technology was able to build empathy. And I think that's thing as a human, we can be good orators. We can have the time and energy to sit down and explain from where we come from and find common ground. But technology can also help us transport people in a very different way than maybe, you know, somebody can talk about it. And just to go into the fellowship a bit, there's 10 of us now. COVID impacted the previous session, so there wasn't anybody there. But before that, there were only four. So the Ministry of Ecological Transition of Italy, they're funding this program that sees currently 10 members, four from the Pacific, four from the Caribbean, and two from the Atlantic, Indian Ocean, and South China Seas, ACE region, which which I'm from. Um, so we have people from Grenada, Dominicanos, Antigua, and Barbuda, who's the current chair of the, of the Oasis. We have Kribas, uh, Fiji, the Maldives. So it's a very diverse group of people, but we're all connected by our small islands and large ocean. Most of us have very large ocean territory. I mean, I just noticed that the Cook Islands has 2 million square kilometers of ocean. I mean, it's huge. I mean, Seychelles is 1.4 million and that's the size of South Africa's landmass. So... You know, It's, it's 600,000 kilometers square larger. But yeah, so we sit in these UN rooms representing our countries. We basically have this year, so till the end of this year, a chance to learn international environmental law and take part in the formulation and negotiation of environmental international law, which is very cool. In March, there was the negotiations on the what can be easily termed the high seas treaty or the biodiversity beyond national jurisdictions treaty. So that was its fourth session. It's been going for two decades. There'll be another session at the end of this year, Been able to take part in a lot of other conferences that will be coming up. So the UN ocean conference in Lisbon, the preparatory work in Bonn, which will be taking place in the first two weeks of June, all the way to COP 27 in Egypt. And in my case, I'm really focused on some key points of specialization. So we've all been given specializations um, because we, we work on climate change, ocean and sustainable development. So in climate change, I'm working on ocean climate nexus, you know, and dialogue, as well as contributing to the global stock take, as well as also helping out the adaptation team of AOSIS. And in the ocean side of things, I'm on a treaty of, well, plastics, you know, there's a treaty that's just been committed to for 2024. And then for sustainable developments, finance. And all these things are cross-cutting, but it's it's a lot to take in. And we're kind of thrown in the deep end. Some of us come from environment backgrounds. Some of us come from law backgrounds. Some of us are diplomats. So we're, we're very differently skilled. But working together, we see how small island states, like my embassy, we only have five people. And until my joining, six people representing Seychelles at the UN and also having to you know, be an embassy for the US, for Canada, you know, so we're very small, limited in resources. But yeah, we have to be at the table and make our views heard. And it's not easy. So we come together as this alliance to take on things. And AOSIS really started off with climate change, but has evolved to take on things like the ocean and sustainable development, because these are increasingly the demands that are being put on its member states. And yeah, we yeah we have seminars, we meet interesting people, we we really try and for this year, prepare ourselves to be the best representatives of our countries. And in the future, you know, we'll be negotiating, not just this year, but for the following years at various COPs, at various negotiations that affect our countries. Sorry, I know I'm joining on, but one point I was going to make was noticing how treaties are, are written and organized when you're trying to get... I immediately noticed if there was a way to actually have a Google Doc in the UN, because there's so many times people are basically trying to add a sentence uh, remove a comma and agree, and this is all done in speaking and, and somebody's keeping that, but literally there's so much ways in which the UN could actually advance technologically wise that would help small island states when it comes to capacities and, and other, you know, I would say disadvantaged states or developing states.
0: Um, that's incredibly, incredibly inspiring to hear and gives me a lot of hope to know that there is considerably more action taking place and more space given to small island states because you do have so much expertise and so much more experience and you are the ones most impacted and immediately impacted so do you feel like um in the last months and within this alliance it has already allowed considerably to have more impact and to be heard more and not only to be heard more but also that what you are suggesting is implemented when you, for example, talked about the virtual voyage to Fiji, which I think is exactly what is so fantastic and also reminded me back to the three words we heard at the All Hands on Deck play, explore, discover, like when you are able to connect people in that kind of way and show them the depths of the ocean or virtually travel with them to this divine place, that's when people start to care. That's when they empathize. You can distance yourself from that kind of experience and mm. see all the all the harm that is done do you feel like that is sustainable though and it's like ongoing that feeling or is it forgotten after one day
1: mm. i mean i think from my experience it's uh it's tricky cuz i think again we we this is more of a start of a of a in my sense i think It's another level removed from Aldebar, from being directly. I mean, it's more into policy. It's more into diplomacy. It's no longer being able to go out and conduct projects that are very tangible. In doing this kind of work, you are enabling others. You're you're finding finance. You're finding partners in NGOs in other countries to complement, to help us. You're trying to make others understand where we are. And it's not going to be me going out and doing these things as, as hands-on as I'd like to be, but hopefully it's others who are going to benefit to have their ideas, have their solutions supported and their barriers removed. So it's a, it's, it's a different experience in terms of really understanding this for myself, but it's somewhere I want to be ultimately. And I think for me, it's the case of, I keep this one Gramsci kind of paraphrase where it's pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. From my second year of environmental science in, in, in Cape Town, I was immediately depressed on things like deforestation. And as you go on and you learn more about coral reefs, overfishing, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, everything, I get to a point where I'm very like, this is this is almost, almost beyond saving. It feels like we've already lost so much. We're about to lose even more. And some of us are unaware of this. Some of us are, are very aware of this, but some of us are, because we're aware of it, you know, under a lot of pressure. And I've I've dealt with burnout. I've dealt with a lot of situations where there isn't always that hope. But I do believe there is a lot of things happening that tells you the fight is starting to get very interesting because of the way the economics are going, because the way the laws are going. So being in the UN, hearing certain countries, seeing how geopolitics, current geopolitics prevents progress or oh, how a pandemic delays progress. These are things that you're dealing with. You have to understand that everything's happening at the UN and everybody's got an agenda. And so I can see the blockages a little bit clearer. I was aware of them before, but actually being in the room and seeing them happen is something to 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 experience and figuring out how you overcome this. But the, ultimately the work and being able to connect it to so many other small island states, that's key. Because as, as we work together, as we find commonalities, we do present a serious case for people or states who might not understand or who may want a different outcome from negotiations. So I don't know, for me, the diplomacy side of things, it's, it's one where I'm happy to be here. It takes a lot, but by doing this, I hope many places, many people are, are empowered because... It, it, it might be a word or a sentence today, but it could be a project, it could be a grant, it could be many things in uh, the months, years, dare I say decades to come.
0: Do you have a specific um, core topic that you are working towards? Is it the endangerment of species at the Seychelles Island? Is it the overfishing? Is it deep sea mining? I don't know which one exactly affects the Seychelles the most, or is it a more broader approach?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I am definitely a generalist. That's maybe why I have, you've, you've seen me in this different forays. <laughs> um, I think for me, it's about bringing people into the room and raising awareness. That's been a lot of what I've done in the last two, three years. And this role is actually forcing me to actually choose where do I want to specialize in. Um, so maybe mm-hmm. the best way I can answer that is with my aspirations for master's. So I'm hoping next year I'd start a masters in the states, and and hopefully I get the funding for it. And I think this this fellowship will hopefully help it. I, I think definitely help it. So for me, the focus would be a public policy masters in environmental policy, and I'll be very interested in maritime security. I think for Seychelles, with a population of just under hundred thousand and this, you know, ocean territory of, of one point four million square kilometers. Again, the size of South Africa of which we've protected 30% now on paper lease and in many ways through the protected areas that exist like Aldabra. But how do we do this, you know, is the question. How do we ensure that, you know, the threats, uh, the multiple threats that face the ocean are addressed? And I really think in Seychelles, we also have other issues that are less environmental. And I said, there's always connection with the environment, like drug trafficking. You know, we, we face a huge problem with drugs in Seychelles. and if drugs are coming in through our ocean, you know, this is something that I'm hoping uh, masters in maritime security can help. So I'm very interested in understanding how technology, again, for small island developing states can enable surveillance, intervention in our large ocean territory. Um,
0: yeah, I was just about to say, even if you have 100% marine protected areas, just like with the even smaller Algebra project, you need people to actually monitor and make sure that People respect the fact that there is a marine protected area and technology will play a huge role in that. Exactly, exactly. It must. Yeah.
1: It must, it must. And I think it's really interesting. I'm, I'm interested in nano satellites. I'm interested in how there's been so many more developments in the launching of, you know, I think India currently holds a record of launching something like 130 nano in one launch. And so, you know, Seychelles doesn't have necessary satellites in, in, in low Earth orbit at the moment. But as we try and figure out things, satellites or drones could be quite interesting because we we have a very small Coast Guard and, and, and Navy in that sense. And being able to pinpoint exactly where someone might be or have the evidence to then prosecute these people will be essential. And I see that environment and other concerns. There's a win-win to be had. If we're able to stop poachers, we're able to stop drug traffickers. You know, we're able to really bring justice to our oceans. And I think this is another way we can build resilience for ourselves. You know, places like Aldabra, other protected areas in Seychelles. You know, we we're, we're feeling the effects of climate change and plastic pollution, but so are other communities in the Indian Ocean. And I think as food security, as 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 livelihoods are impacted, people will be forced to go to a place like Aldabra. It's abundant in fish. It's abundant in all these species. Someone who's suffering in in, in other places. Uh, will be drawn there and there needs to be underground impactful projects to to build resilience there but we also must understand that people would be more drawn to this resource rich base and you know unfortunately undermine the resilience of someone like that. so as a country we must try our best to to really enforce our laws and commitments and whether it's on our own people other people is something we need to consider carefully so that's one thing i'm definitely going to be contributing to and for me, the ocean space is where I think I'll be, and I'm, I'm ultimately interested in climate security because what we were talking about yesterday is is statelessness. Um, you know, Currently, there's no such thing as a climate refugee according to the definition of refugees. So we were thinking about what happens. Do we buy land in somewhere else and import our sovereignty, our constitution and rights to that land, or are we assimilated into a larger country and now over generations our identity is lost? So I think about climate security because it's something that shows as sea levels rise, islands disappear. As tuna migrate differently or coral reefs die or land, land is made uninhabitable, you're forced to leave a country that is your home, you know? And I think that's climate security is really showing that you're, as a state, as, as an individual, you're being impacted by climate change. And that's your human rights being impacted.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really powerful thing to end on, so to say. But I have three questions for the end of the podcast. I'm so copying every standard podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> First question is, what gives you like giant raging thunderstorms in your stomach? Like what are things where you just want to throw everything aboard and and quit? But then ultimately, what are the tools? Who are the people which projects help you cope with that and keep you going? Because that is something I think many, many of us who are aware of this problem, as you said, are coping with and trying to like navigate between your personal mental health in this topic and still being being efficient and being um, doing meaningful things and keeping up.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh it's something I dealt with a lot last year, I think giving up if I, and I I don't know for me, there was maybe one decision I made that was quite interesting. I had the opportunity to attend COP27. Um, but at the same time I had responsibility 26,
0: the the one in in Glasgow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I had the opportunity to attend COP26 in Glasgow. I'm already time traveling now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, uh, but I had responsibilities in Seychelles. So I also volunteered the Global Shapers and we have this environmental youth leadership program, which is meant to empower um, kids between the ages of, you know, 13 to about 18, 20, or 12 to 20, to basically become climate, I would say champions in their community and run like the two weeks they basically learn about, you know, conservation, climate, other issues uh, that affect Seychelles and then two weeks to get to do projects. And COVID has been playing a muck with this for a while. So our team is tired. You know, regulations are, are very tricky. But again, this opportunity came up for COP26. And I thought, you know what? I've seen various COPs happen, and I've seen how it ends, and I've been to pre-COP, and these are words on paper, so what? You know, they still pollute. They still go and whatever, whatever. And I decided then to stay on the ground, and I saw these kids basically learn and engage. As a coordinator at that point, it was very important. It was a responsibility to me for the funds we got, for the parents who entrusted us, that this was a project that happened. And if I had gone to COP26, I don't know if I would have had the same energy. I don't know if I had the same outlook. Now, I find myself in a different position after doing the first iteration. This project still going with an amazing team that is carrying on without me, whatever support they need, they can get from my side. But I think it's interesting because now I'm in this space where I'm like the words, the sentences, all this counts. And I think that's a trick is we can do whatever we want within our national capacities. We can build all these communities, these groups, but there's only so much they can adapt to. There's only so much we can do at home. We need to be outside of our homes. We need to come to New York and live here. We need to, Unfortunately, traveling and attend Zoom at crazy times because the fight isn't necessarily at home. It's in these centers of power. And if we're not there to present our people, our communities, our problems, our solutions, there may not be other people in the room who can. And so we we don't have that choice. We don't have a luxury of choice saying, okay, we're just going to stay at home, do our best because there's limits to that. Uh, That might be able to prevent some things, but going to the cause of the problem is key. I think for me, it's looking around and have been burnt out, but I've seen other people burn out and I've seen how they're able to build back their mental health. And I've seen other people who are tireless and give me energy. I see projects in New York around the world that are doing the right things and really, I would say intersectional in doing so, you know, not just backing the science, but ensuring that race, gender, ableism, uh, concerns, uh, many other things are dressed in doing this work and so when you see something done like that you think wow where there might be so many barriers to do something actually somebody's figured out a a pretty good way of doing it and that gives you hope because if they can figure out hopefully you you have an idea to figure it out as well um also going back to technology i think you know it's something that is a tool but as it becomes more and more pronounced in the world You know, I think small island countries, small island developing states, developing states in general, the internet, all these things, if it's used properly, if people are given the right tools to to address the problem of whether it's misinformation or anything, we're able to basically learn about this problem in a way that others can't. I I was just reminded by an intervention in the General Assembly that youth, you know, we make up the largest portion of the population ever. Like, I think it's something, I forget, it's something ridiculous, like something like 40% the world can be called the youth, you know, something between up to the ages of 35. And we're, we're very empowered with our devices. And so I go on social media and sometimes it feels like, oh, reality TV dominates, but then you find actually no blue planet or some, you know, an animal being rescued or something else. And so you, you do see there's people who want to connect with nature still. And as long as that happens, people are willing to understand it. If they understand it, they can love it. If they can love it, they want to protect it. So as long as that keeps happening the day that everything's artificial and we only want reality tv then i'm definitely there's no much hope
0: <laughs> <laughs> no but i i see that i see that change a lot and i'm not sure if it's only a certain bubble um mm-hmm. or really people in our age group entering the workforce really having the privilege of deciding what do I actually want to work on? Where do I want to work? And that automatically leading to the fact that I know I know a ton of people who are quitting their job, who are choosing their jobs based on their values and based on the climate action that that company or organization is committed to. And I think that's incredibly important Yeah. Um, because what is going to happen to the world if, as you say, 40% or however much it is of the youth population is not engaging in the traditional workforce anymore. That's a huge tool we have. And I think there's only so much individual responsibility also that we should have, right? When you talk about empowering students, uh, young people on the Seychelles, that is incredibly, incredibly important, but it's not, I always come to the point where I think it's not my personal responsibility to use the reusable cup. It's the 70% of the emissions that are entering the climate, uh, from the large corporations. And, um, that is incredibly important why, for that. It's incredibly important that you are sitting at the power structure and the power places. That's amazing. One last question. If you had to choose a completely different occupation within the ocean world, what would it be and why, uh-huh. or would you not choose anything different?
1: <laughs> um, so one of my childhood dreams. Um, I grew up with a lot of National Geographic uh, mm-hmm.
0: magazines.
1: And so one of my absolute dreams as a child, and it, it could be ocean, but it, I, I think it, it applied generally, but let's say it was ocean, uh, was to be a National Geographic photographer. And, uh, you know, I, I really love the pictures of Paul Nikon. There's so many amazing photographers, just to name one. It's not fair, but, you know, again, that exploration, that discover, that play, it seems to be all there. And so while I I know what I'm doing here is is important to me and others and, and, and hopefully contributes to the change. I do think pictures, stories, bring people in. And I think so for me, if I was somewhat taking the time to go out and document what's hopeful and amazing as well as what's being destroyed, that would also be very important to me. It's extremely important because this is building that connection. So I would love to be a National Geographic explorer slash photographer in the ocean. That's for sure.
0: I can totally second that. <laughs> I, I always look at that and think, wow, I want to I wanna do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think this gets us to the end of, of the conversation. It's been really amazing and inspiring. Thank you so much for joining my first episode <laughs> and telling us about the important work you do. And I can't wait to... Follow everything else you do, and I'm sure you'll get that, Masters. If you don't get it, um, there's really something broken in the world, I think, I mean.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, thank you so much. I appreciate this platform and the time, and yeah, great questions. So I can only wish you uh, even more amazing conversations or yeah, great conversations ahead. (laughs) Thanks. And we'll
0: um, stay in touch and um, hopefully see each other in June in Berlin.